about this verse 31 for a second. Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Now, I'm not an expert on Greek, and I won't claim to be, but the, what I've studied out and read is this phrase for you, has asked for you, is actually a plural sense, kind of saying that Satan has asked for all of them. He wants to bring all the disciples down. But specifically, Simon is mentioned because Simon is kind of the leader, de facto, of the disciples. And it's like dominoes. If Simon would go, the rest of them would go. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But there's an interesting passage. Satan asked for you. We have to talk about that. He wants to sift you as wheat. That idea of sifting, shaking violently. This idea of getting rid of all the chaff, getting rid of all that useless stuff. What Satan is basically saying is, I want to take Simon and I want to shake his faith... So that way he falls and he stumbles. But he had to get God's permission in verse 31. Isn't that interesting? A little bit of background on this. And if you have time today, I encourage you to study out. It's in Job chapter 1. In Job chapter 1 verse 10, Satan says to God, he goes, your servant Job, he goes, you've put a hedge of protection around him. That's why he glorifies you. That's why he worships you. Is you have protected him. So Satan asks permission from God saying, can I get into Job's life and basically shake up his life to show you, to prove to you, this man is not a man of God, but this man would fall and crumble when his world falls apart. God says, I will let you come into Job's life. I will let you go put him through these trials and testing to show you that Job's faith is strong. It's the same thing here with Satan going with Simon. God is allowing Satan to come in and shake Simon to show something deeper and to prove something deeper with Simon. Now that's a really interesting thing. It shows me that the Lord has a hedge of protection around me. It also shows me that anything needs to happen to me, it has to go through the filter of God. And I think that's very important. It shows that the enemy wants to get in and disrupt and cause problems. He wants to tear us down. That's what he wants to do. We have to understand the heavenly scene. In the Bible, it says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. The way the heavenly scene plays out is this. God the Father is up in heaven sitting on the throne. Christ is at his right hand. Satan stands before God the Father, the Bible tells us, and makes accusations against us. Now, I'm not saying that I'm important. I'll just use me as an example. The enemy says to God the Father, look at James. You really want him to be the pastor of that church? You really want him to be married to her? You really want him to be the father of those five boys? You really want him? You see what he says? You see what he does? You see how he acts? And he calls himself a Christian? He's making accusations against me. Now, God the Father is truth. So God the Father looks at that truth. He can't deny it. I'm a sinner. There's no way around that. But the Bible says in 1 John that Jesus is my advocate, which literally translates my defense attorney. Jesus steps in and says, yes, those accusations are true, but I covered that on the cross. And that's where I am now taken care of by the blood of Jesus through forgiveness. And this is this heavenly scene that happens. Satan accuses uh, accusations against us. God the Father must honor truth. Jesus steps in and says, I've taken care of that sin. So this is this heavenly scene that's constantly going on until Satan is kicked out of heaven, which is the book of Revelation, which we'll talk about when we study in Revelation. But you see right here, Satan has asked for Simon. Let me shake him. Let me shake this guy. Let me make him stumble and fall. And what's Christ's great response? Verse 32. I'll pray for you. That's all. There's none of this, Peter, just stay with me. Stay right beside me, I'll keep you safe. There's none of this, hey Simon, I've told Satan to back off. The response of Jesus is, I'll pray for you. Now think about this. How often as Christians do we just throw that phrase around? I'll pray for you. I tell you this, one thing I've learned very, very early, and it was the first message I ever taught on a Wednesday night 16 years ago. Samuel said, far be it for me to sin against the Lord by not praying for you. And at that time it hit me, 
For me to not pray for somebody is sin. And if I come up to you and I tell you, I will pray for you, that is the strongest words I can give you. I was just talking to someone not too long ago, and they're in a very difficult situation. There is not an easy answer. I don't know what they should do, and my response is, I will pray for you. And I mean that sincerely, and I mean that literally. I will give you over to the Lord. Think about that. For someone to say they will pray for you means I will take time out of my day, I will quit thinking about myself, and I will lift you up in prayer. The best thing Jesus could do for Simon at this time is say, I will pray for you. I encourage you, be a man or woman of prayer. And if you tell people, I'll pray for you, then by golly, I encourage you, follow up on it. That's the best you can do for some of these situations. So Jesus says, I'll pray for you. But here's the neat part. I'll pray for you. But in John 17, guess what Jesus does? He prays for all of us. Have you ever stopped and thought about that? When you're having one of those down, depressing, discouraging days and no one cares about you, Go to John 17, verse 15, and read the verse where Jesus Christ prayed for you. The creator of the universe took time out of his day to pray for us. The previous chapter, he told us, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will struggle. But in John 17, he says, I'll pray for you. That is a powerful, powerful statement. So what happens here? Verse 32, your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus says to Peter, listen, when you stumble and fall, you'll come back and you will strengthen your brethren. Let's see what happens with this. Go to John 21, please. John 21. Let's get into a little more detail about what actually happens here with Peter. John 21. We have a tendency in our walk with Christ when we stumble and fall to just lay down, to just give up. Some of you may have come in this morning and you're in a Simon Peter moment right now. You've made a mess of your life spiritually. You've done things you shouldn't have done. You've said things. You've acted things. You've thought things. You've denied them. I don't know what it is, but you are in a Simon Peter moment of you said, Lord, I would never, but yet you did. How did Peter respond when he completely, utterly, spiritually failed? John 21, verse 3. It says, Simon Peter said to them, this is after Jesus rose from the dead. This is after Peter had seen him. He's still in this spiritual mess, though. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. Now, you may not think that that's a big deal. I'm going fishing. It sounds like a fun way to spend the afternoon. No, Peter is saying, I'm giving up. What Peter is doing is going back to what he used to do. That's what he used to be as a fisherman. He's not just going to go out and spend the day fishing to kill time. He is giving up being a disciple, being an apostle, giving up his calling, and he's quitting. Have you ever wanted to do that? You have become a spiritual mess. There's no hope. I'm done. I quit. I'm going back to fishing. Boy, isn't that what we want to do? We just studied in Genesis 3. We did the fall of man here this last Wednesday. And we studied Adam and Eve, and we talked about how when we sin, we do these things. We try to hide from God. We try to cover our sin. And we try to blame other people. Think about that. When we sin, do we not try to hide from God? We quit coming to church because we feel convicted when we come. People say, hey, I missed you. And you don't want to hear that, so we just don't come. We cover our sin. We try to make ourselves look good, and we cover up all those dirty, ugly parts. Or we just start blaming people. Same thing still happens today. Peter, he just wanted to quit. 
Have you ever wanted to do that spiritually? You just wanted to quit. It's not worth it. I've done the praying. I've done the studying. I've done the church thing. It's not worth it. I'm done. I'm going back to what I used to do. Here's the problem. The most miserable person in the world is a Christian who knows what they should be doing and they're not. Because when you go do the ways of the world and you go back to do the things you used to do that used to be fun, now you're convicted by the Holy Spirit. But now when you try to step in church and go deeper in your walk, you're convicted by the things you did. So what's the answer? The answer is to be restored in Jesus. So Peter goes back to fishing. This is also what happens when we decide to quit. Look at verse 3. three excuse me, verse 3. They said to him, we are going with you also. See, when I quit, it affects everybody else too. Peter said, I'm going to go fishing. They said, well, we'll go fishing with you. We are a domino in the sense of when one of us falls, it affects all of us. That's why we're supposed to be there to encourage and support. Now, you may be thinking, I have no spiritual influence on anybody. I disagree with you greatly. The Bible makes it clear that you have a circle of influence that you may not even know about. Be it co-workers, friends, family, I don't know what it is. That when you have made a confession of Christ, you have impacted other people. So when you decide to quit and go back fishing, it affects them too. That's what happens. If I decide to give up on God, it's going to affect my wife. It's going to affect my boys. It's going to affect the church. And there's this domino effect. Not that I'm important but because there's an influence. And it's the same thing with you. If you come and you say, I quit, that affects me. Well, it doesn't affect. It does. It hurts to see someone go back to fishing. And other people were influenced by that. Here's the thing, though. When you quit, because life is just a spiritual mess and it's not worth it, look at the end of verse 33. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. What is the result of giving up And life and marriage and work and everything, the result is you get nothing. It's an emptiness. There's a spiritual emptiness when you just give up. So what needs to happen? Well, verses 4, 5, and 6, Jesus shows up and he has this miraculous catch of fish. Then verse 7, Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had removed it and he plunged into the sea. What should your response be? Jump right back in with Jesus. Jump right back in. When you look at your life and you say, I'm in a Simon Peter moment. This is a spiritual mess. I just want to quit. How do I get back to where I should be? You jump right back in. I had a phone call a while ago, and I kind of felt bad because this guy contacted me, and he was talking about how he was struggling with certain things spiritually. And one of the things that he mentioned was is that um, when he goes to bed at night, he just kind of lays there with regret. I, I should have read the Bible more today. I should have done this. And so he contacted me, and he was bothered by this. And he says, what do you think I should do? And I said, well, what's the problem? He goes, I go to bed at night, and as I lay there in bed at night, I'm just full of all this like I wasted the day. He goes, and I said, well, what's the one thing you wish you would do? He goes, I really wish I would just read the Bible more during the day. I said, okay. I said, how about this? How about you just read the Bible more during the day? And I kind of felt like I was being cocky, and I didn't mean to be. Isn't that kind of what it is? Listen, if you come here this morning and you come and tell me, listen, I'm not in the Word as much as I should be. You know what I'm going to tell you? Why don't you get in the Word? I I don't think I pray as much as I should. Why don't you make a prayer request? Listen, start praying it. I feel like I should serve more. Then serve more. I feel like I should be a nicer, stronger witness. Then be a nicer, stronger witness. Jump in the water. I think sometimes we sit here and we complicate things way too much. If you are not content spiritually with where you are at with the Lord, meaning I know or I think I should be doing more, then how about we start doing more? 
Not because it's some fleshly thing of I will do more to make myself feel better, but I'm going to do more because I choose to. I want to. I want to go deeper. I'm going to jump off the boat. I'm going to quit fishing, and I'm going to go back to do things with Jesus. Let's just keep it simple. And I think sometimes we complicate it. Peter gave up. He was a mess. What was the answer? Run back to Jesus. And when he ran back to Jesus, he was restored. You may be still sitting here today thinking, you don't know what I've done. I do know what David did. David did this. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, had Bathsheba's husband killed, and then David went for about a year without repenting. Nathan the prophet comes into David and says, David, you've sinned. And David's response is, I have sinned against the Lord. In Psalm 51, David wrote this. This is the great psalm he wrote after the sin with Bathsheba. He wrote this. He goes, Restore me so I may teach sinners the errors of my way. David says, I want to use this now to help other people. You may have had a Peter moment where it's a mess. You can be restored. You can jump back into Christ. You can re-strengthen the brethren. And you can now come to people and say, listen, I understand. I've been there. This is what the Lord did for me. And your mess can actually start to be a blessing to other people. Because you can say, I've been there. I've gone through it. So we look here at Simon. And we see a spiritual mess, but we also see God strengthening and restoring him. That's going to happen later on. Let's move on. Verse 35. He said, He said to them, When I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. Then he said to them, But now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished to me. And he who was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Look, here. Here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now this is kind of interesting. He's sending them out on a missionary journey. Now he already sent them out on a missionary trip once, way back in uh, Luke chapter 10. And it was a supernatural missionary trip. Everything was provided for him. He said, just go out and it will be taken care of for you. Things will be supernaturally provided for you. The the food, the housing, everything. And it says in Luke 10 that they came back just full of joy. Because everything clicked wonderfully. What we have here in Luke 22, this, this one's not as easy. Now you need to plan ahead a little bit. Take a knapsack, take a money bag, take a sword. This is going to be difficult. This is going to be a tough missionary trip. What does that show me? It shows me that I have days where everything clicks. I have a day where every phone call I get is my cousin got saved, the doctor said no cancer, and my marriage is restored. Amen. Luke 10, what a great missionary trip. The next day is, my cousin doesn't want to get saved, my marriage is falling apart, and the doctor said cancer. Okay, that's a little harder. That's Luke 22. But you know what? God is still the same God over both those days. And I need to remember that there's good days of ministry, and I remember there's tough days of ministry. There's days I show up on a Sunday, the message goes good, the church is full. The next Sunday, the message is awful, and where's everybody at? That happens. I was just talking to someone the other day, and him and I use this phrase called a spiritual hangnail. And I, what I mean by this is that I run into some people that have one little thing go wrong with them. A hangnail, something small. Yes, it hurts. It deflates and knocks them down completely. They're going to have rough days. This guy I was talking to the other day lost his wife. And he talked about how the Lord had to get him through that. And he talked about how now with the Lord getting him through that, he's now able to go help those people struggling. I'm telling you right now, on the good days where it all clicks, just enjoy it. Praise God. On the days where it doesn't click, 
Just enjoy it and praise God. He's still the same God. So yes, there's difficultness. Yes, there's some big issues. There's also some little spiritual hangnails. Make sure you don't allow those little spiritual hangnails to deflate you and knock you down. Because the Lord is still Lord. He will still take care of you. Remember that. Now, they're supposed to provide here money bag, knapsack, sword. Ooh, we get to talk about swords. This is interesting. Because I have met pacifists that use verses 35 through 38 to talk about how God wants you to be a pacifist. And I've seen people that are gun rights use verses 35 to 38 to tell me how you're supposed to carry a sword. Right to carry, let's go. I've seen both sides of this. I think this is kind of interesting here. First off, isn't it interesting? He mentions knapsack, money bag, and sword. What's the only one the disciples focus on? Sword. Is that not human nature? Knapsack, not fun. Money bag, not fun. But sword? Now, when I first read this, I remember when I first got saved, I imagined like Braveheart's sword, like four foot long. And I imagined these disciples like walking around with a sword. They're like, don't mess with me. I like that. I was really disappointed when I looked up the word sword. Basically, this word sword is bigger than a pocket knife, but smaller than a sword. It was used for this idea of like uh, cleaning animals to eat and other things along that type of line. I think it's interesting that they come, look, two swords. At this time, there's 11 of them. Two swords amongst 11 people. That's not a really good ratio. So Jesus says, it is enough. Now, I think that's interesting. Now, is he saying it's enough? Like, hey, guys, that's good. Two for 11? I don't think so. My personal opinion, take it or leave it, personal opinion, as I think the sword represents flesh. I think the sword represents the way the disciples were looking at it. Let me rephrase. Is this idea of sword and fighting. Basically this. Do you want to know about Jesus? No. Well, then enjoy hell. That's what I think the sword represents. This anger, this flesh, this frustration that I don't want to see people saved. I want to fight the tyranny of sin. And I think sometimes as Christians, we get in that sword mentality. It's not about salvation. It's about fighting. And I think Jesus is trying to tell them in verse 38, it is enough. I don't think this is, it's enough. Like two, you got it covered. My opinion, take it or leave it. I think Jesus is saying to the disciples, guys, it's enough. Come on. Back off. It's enough. I'm not a pacifist. I don't mean that in any way whatsoever. I'm talking spiritually. When I run into Christians that aren't interested in souls being saved, they're just interested in judgment. Come on, guys. That's enough. Back off a little bit. What matters most is souls being saved. It's not about knocking people down spiritually and sending them to the fires of hell. No. I run into some people that they're not interested in salvation of souls. They're interested in swinging the sword. They just want to go out and start chopping people down spiritually. That's enough. Let's focus on souls being saved. And we're going to get to this in a little bit. So we're going to leave that point there. But we're going to come back to it here in a little bit. Verse 39, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. I find verse 39 fascinating. He went to the place where he was accustomed to. In the book of John, Judas knew where to find Jesus because he knew where he would be praying. 
Can you imagine that? Can you imagine people knowing you so well that they knew that you would always be praying about things? That they knew they could always catch you praying? Like, hey, I'm going to call this guy. I can't call him now. I know this is the time he spends in prayer. See, Jesus was such a man of prayer that he had his spot where he prayed. He had his time where he prayed. What a blessing that is. I got a few people I know that if I call them and say, hey, would you pray for me? I know without a shadow of a doubt they will stop what they're doing and they will pray for me. And that is one of the greatest blessings you could ever ask for is somebody who will legitimately give you over to the Lord. And amen for that. Jesus and his time of trial and trouble, we just read the word, agony, prays. I hope that is a teaching point for all of us today. If you are struggling, if you are suffering, if you are troubled, pray. That is going to be the most powerful thing you can do. And he tells the disciples, pray, verse 40, pray that you may not enter into temptation. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. There's two different types of prayer. There's the reactionary prayer. You go to work. Something bad happens. I need to pray. I react to the situation by praying. You go to the doctor's office. You get a bad diagnosis. I react to the situation by praying. Those prayers aren't wrong. They're reactionary. But there's something where God wants us to do called prayers of preparation. Where, Lord, prepare me for what's coming because I don't even know what it is. See, Jesus knew what was coming. So verse 40, guys, you need to start praying now. It's going to get bad. There's trusts and trials and tribulation. I know my day is going to be tough, Lord. I know there's going to be sin and temptation and trouble. I don't see it coming, but Lord, I'm going to give you today in prayer. I already start praying. Lord, I'm going to already start praying for my boys because there's going to be difficulties for them. I'm going to pray for my wife. I'm going to pray for the church. Is something going wrong? No, but I know something is eventually going to go wrong out here. Let's start praying for it. It's that prayer of preparation. I encourage you to always be people that pray. Yes, react to things in prayer, but also start praying before anything happens. Why is that difficult for us? Because verse 45, we like to sleep. Spiritually speaking, we like to sleep. Jesus is telling us in verse 40, he's telling us in verse 46, get up and pray. Verse 45, I just want to sleep. I think it's interesting. The sleep of sorrow, verse 45. Now, sometimes when we're so overwhelmed with life, physically, emotionally, spiritually, we just want to sleep. 1 Kings 19, Elijah was so overwhelmed with depression, he just wanted to sleep. I've never struggled with this, but I know people that have, where they tell me that when life gets difficult, be it through sorrow or depression, that they could sleep 20 out of 24 hours a day. And I remember one time there was a guy that called me up and he was struggling with this and he was battling some depression and he was telling me about how difficult it was and I gave him some suggestions and he got frustrated at me. He said, you don't know what I'm going through. Now, my response normally is when someone says I, that I don't know what they're going through, I usually say, you're right, I don't know what you're going through. I usually say, but you also don't know what I'm going through. That's the thing about human nature. We never know what the other person's going through. So let's just stick to what the Bible says. So what does the Bible say when you're battling the sleep of sorrow and the sleep of depression, the Bible says two words. You ready for it? It says, get up. Now, when you're struggling, that's not what you want to hear. But that is God's biblical response. Here's Elijah, 1 Kings 19. Lord, I just want to die. God's response, Elijah, get up. Jesus, right here, Luke 22. The disciples are sleeping from sorrow. What does he tell them? Get up. 
If you just sit there in that depression and that sorrow, that will eat you alive. Now, once again, I'm not trying to sit here and say anything medical. I'm not trying to sit here and say anything like that. I'm saying that there is that opportunity to get up and say, Lord, I can walk victoriously in you. I was telling you about that guy that I was talking to recently that lost his wife. He told me this story. Lost his wife very tragically. And I think he said it was about two weeks after he lost his wife. He had a Saturday. And it was one of those Saturdays. He just didn't want to get up. It was depressing. It was discouraging. Life lost my spouse. And the Lord told him, get up. So I think what he told me was this, if I remember the story correctly. He says he got up. He didn't know what to do. So he went to Walmart. Because Walmart heals all your depression. He went to Walmart, walked around, and he ran into somebody from church. And I kind of said, what are you doing? He goes, I'm trying to stay away from the sleep of depression. Get up. Says he got through it. A couple weeks later, same thing happened again. Just one of those days where just quit, be done. Lord told him to get up. So at that time, he got up and the Lord laid on his heart, start a Bible study, start ministering, start serving. And he still has that Bible study to this day. It is really easy when the going gets tough to lay down and just give up. And guess what happens? This is what happens. You're going to call me up. You're going to say, I'm struggling. And I'm going to say, get up. And you're going to say, I can't. And then I'm going to say, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens you. And then you're going to do what? Be silent, because you know I'm right. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> but the truth is this. It's easy to just give up. It's easy to justify it. The disciples are so full of sorrow. I mean, somebody's going to betray them. Peter's going to deny them. Jesus is going to die. I just want to sleep. No, Pray. Elijah, I'm the only one left. No one understands. No one gets it. I'm out here struggling by myself. I'm just going to, just kill me, Lord. No, get up. See, here's the verse that we use. You don't have to turn there. It's Nehemiah 8.10. It says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Listen to that one more time. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, this is what the guy told me that lost his wife. He said, quoted that verse to me. And I said, I love that verse. I said, I quote that verse to everybody. He goes, but do you know what it says before that? I said, no. I said, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I went and I looked it up. And the words before it are, do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And what he told me was this. He goes, the Lord told me, stop grieving. Now, he made it clear. He still misses his wife. He still grieves. Doesn't mean you stop being sorrowful. But he says, I couldn't stay in that spot forever. Do not grieve. The joy of the Lord is your strength. We can learn a lot from that. Here with the disciples... Get up, pray. Oh, but Lord, everything's falling apart. I know, it means it's better time to pray than ever. Just be careful in your life. I know it's a touchy subject. When things get overwhelming and your life is a mess, be careful of the sleep of depression and the sleep of sorrow. Get up, pray, serve. Usually when I say serve, that's when somebody says, well, I don't feel like it. That's part of the beauty of it. When you serve the Lord, you're now saying, I will quit thinking about myself and I'll start thinking about others. Be careful of those things. Because why? Temptation is always around the corner. Now, we can't skip over verse 42. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What an honest prayer. And and I've prayed that prayer too. Lord, I don't want to do this. But if you want me to do it, I'll be obedient. That's a tough prayer to pray. Lord, it's not about me, it's about you. And it's about doing what you've called me to do. 
It's about you being my Lord and I be the servant and I will be obey with an open heart. Here's the thing I'll just encourage you with this. You can obey on the outside without, without your heart obeying. I encourage you, have an obedient heart as much as you have obedient actions. We've all faked it before. Somebody comes up and says, thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. I love to serve Jesus. Now, in my heart, I want to mean it. I want to obey on the outside, and I want to obey in my heart. Lord, truly help me to say, not my will, but your will be done. What happens now, verse 47, while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before him and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. See, the sword's back. The sword that Jesus told him to take, but then the sword he kind of said, Guys, that's enough. You may disagree with me, and that's fine. I think this sword also represents this fleshly response to the, to the, in the gospel. See, I can respond. Anytime I serve the Lord, I can respond in the flesh or I can respond in the spirit. Those are the only two choices I have. I think the sword represents this fleshly response. Here, here they are. They're coming to arrest Jesus. Verse 49. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Do you think they were thinking, this is why he told us to get him. We're supposed to fight now. I love this. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Now, now look at the response of Jesus. There is none. They still just went ahead and started chopping off ears. Have you ever done that spiritually? Lord, do you want me to do this? I'm going to do it. We don't even let him answer. He never told them to do this. They asked and just did it. I am so guilty of this. Lord, are you calling me to do this? Obviously you are. I'm still praying while I'm doing it. They got themselves in trouble. And how they get themselves in trouble? They're cutting off ears. Now just think about this for a second. Best we can put together is this. There's 11 disciples, two swords. We know from the other gospel accounts that they're surrounded by soldiers. Now I appreciate their effort in wanting to chop off ears, but they can't win this. Now you may stop and say, but I like that effort. That's not an effort of the Lord. That's an effort of the flesh. That's the sword. And what happens is this, first off, and this has been joked about many times, what type of death blow is an ear cut? I mean, seriously, this is the best a fisherman could do, is cut off an ear. And what you see here is flesh and anger and frustration. And just ask yourself spiritually, do you respond with the heart of salvation or do you respond with the heart of the sword? There's a time in all of our lives where we stop and we say, I like the sword. I'm looking for ears to cut off. I'm looking for things to attack. I'm not happy with this situation. And plus, they just got up. I don't know about you guys. If you wake me up in the middle of a sleep, I'm, the best I could probably do is hit an ear. I'm not good. I mean, these guys are not ready for this. They're not prayed up. They're not in the spiritually right spot. And they're still swinging swords. We've got to be careful about this. This is a response of the flesh. And just ask yourselves honestly, do I respond with the sword or do I respond with the heart of salvation? See, look at the response of Jesus. Permit even this, and then he healed them. The last recorded miracle of Jesus is healing the person that was coming to arrest him. Think about that for a second. The guy that was coming to arrest Jesus 
is healed. I don't know for sure what happens. The guy's name was Malchus. We know this from the other, uh, other gospel accounts. I don't know for sure, but don't you think we'll have a chance to see Malchus in heaven? I mean, don't you think that would touch this man? That, that he's coming to arrest Jesus and he's healed. Now, now, let's make this personal for a second. Do you have somebody in your life you just can't stand? They've hurt you. I mean, they've hurt you bad. And you want to cut their ear off. Hopefully not literally, but you want to cut their ear off. Jesus wants to heal them. See, this is my flesh. My flesh, when somebody wrongs me, is I want to strike with the sword. The, the response of Jesus, let's bring salvation to them. Ah, see, I, I sit there and I try to figure out, Lord, this one's past salvation. Let's just use the sword. No. Let's look at the heart of Christ. heart of Christ always wants to lean towards healing and grace and mercy. The heart of the flesh always wants to realize the sword. We can learn a lot from this. Jesus heals and wow, love, grace, and mercy. What a picture. What a picture. Can you imagine how much different the gospel account would be if Jesus said, take your swords out and fight? No. Permit even this is what he says. And by the way, let's heal him. Just once again ask yourself, is it the sword or is it salvation? Always lean towards grace, mercy, and salvation because that's the heart of Christ. This is where we're going to cut it off here today because we start and next week with Jesus denying, excuse me, Peter denying Jesus.